Scotty. I'm, I'm Scotty. <laughs> I think uh, Jack and uh, Renee and Emily did such a good job, I was wondering if you'd want me back. Uh, so I'm glad you turned up today, that's reassuring. Um, so we took a little break. We've been in Zechariah for the last few months, so we took a little bit of a break there. We're going to jump in the next few weeks and finish up Zechariah. So those of you who are loving this series are going to be disappointed. I think most of you are like, few. We're finally over this awkward and uncomfortable and confusing book. It's, it's been a fun journey, um, and so we're, we're not quite done. There's some fun things to look at. Um, you know, it's Father's Day today, so happy Father's Day. Um, I want to acknowledge, you know, as we show a video like that where people are talking about the awesomeness of their fathers, there is a group of people in the world and some of them sitting in the middle of our experience. They didn't have a positive father experience. They didn't have a dad around um, or our dads were negligent and abusive. And, and so we want to acknowledge that, um, that this is not an easy day for everybody, um, But the beauty is that we are here to gather with our eyes fixed on the Father and part of the revelation of Scripture and part of the journey that we get to walk in, in our spiritual journey, is for God to redeem. Whether you have a good father on earth or a bad experience on earth, God wants to redeem both and reveal to us who he really is and and to become the father that we're desperately longing for. Um, So we're going to pick up in Zechariah, we're going to look at chapters 12 and 13 today. Um, There's a wonderful gospel reminder in here, and this passage is really a presentation of this amazing father that we gather to worship. So let me remind you where we're at. So Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet. So what's happened, God chose the people of Israel, he entered into a covenant with them, he told them, here's the regulations, do these things, you get to walk with me forever, if you disobey my covenant, you'll be kicked out of the land, and it's not going to go well for you. So what happens, they give themselves to idolatry, the worship of false gods, they break the covenant, Uh, the Assyrians come in uh, in 722 and and take a bunch of them off into captivity, then the Babylonians in, what is it, 586 come in and take another bunch of them off into captivity. And so they've been scattered into foreign lands and trying to figure out how do I live my faith and worship this God in lands that are opposed to him. Uh, And then God brings the people of Israel back back to the land and instructs them to build the temple. And so they've come back to the the land. They're rebuilding the temple that's been destroyed. Uh, I'm hoping to say this enough times that when someone asks you what Zechariah is about, you've got the story down, right? Um, So they're back in the land. They're rebuilding the temple, but they get discouraged. Things aren't going the way they wanted it to. The land is not the way they thought it would be. Enemies are continuing to come against them. And so Zechariah steps on the scene with this book of messages that are encouraging them to finish the work that God's called them to do and reassuring them of the hope that's coming, uh, of of the end result and what it's going to look like and that he is present in it all. And so we're at this point in the journey where they're back in the land and I want you to think about this. They've been in the land. Let me try and contextualize this for you. You know what it's like to to live in a particular way and mindset and then God kind of shakes things up for you a little bit. You move to your Babylon, you move to Portland, you move to another part of the world, you get a new job, you get married, life changes, and you have that moment internally like, okay, I'm not going to do the things I did anymore, I'm done with those sins, I'm changing my eating habits, I'm going to exercise more, life is going to be so much better, and then things kind of end and you go back home, and you know what happens when you go back home, right? Like you slip back into all the old habits. I see this every time I go to Scotland and I get to my mum's house. 
this time I'm not going to do X, Y, or Z. And I get to mom's house and the first thing I do is X, Y, or Z. So you know how the story goes. So they've been exiled out of the land. They've had a hard time. They've repented. They've come back to the land. And what's happening is they're sliding back into the way things have always been, just like it is for us. So this is the point as they're discouraged, trying to figure out how does this work, wondering as they're looking at these promises God's made, we're back, we're rebuilding the temple, but things don't seem any better. Are the promises that you gave to us ever going to be fulfilled? Um, And that's where we're at in the story in in chapter 12 and 13. We're going to see God's words to them and his reassurance that these promises are going to be fulfilled. With all prophecy in scripture, you've got the things that are happening in the day that it's been written. So the fulfillment of you're back in the land, you're building the temple, things are going to go well. But there's often a prophetic declaration that looks further into the future. And so in these chapters, as we read through them, you're going to notice the phrase all the way through, on that day, 18 times in chapters 12 and 13. It's on that day. So he's looking ahead to a future moment. And I want you to pay attention as I read through it to the I statements, the verbs of what God is going to do and what he's promising his people. So let's read 12 and 13 of Zechariah, and then we'll break it down into some more details. So here's Zechariah chapter 12, starting in verse 1. A prophecy, the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person, he declares, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch among the sheaves that will consume all the surrounding peoples right and left, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plain of each clan by itself with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, all the rest of the clans and their wives will mourn. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, their father and mother to whom they've been born will say to them, you must die because you've told lies in the Lord's name. 
Then their own parents will stab the one who prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of their prophetic vision. They will not put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. Each will say, I'm not a prophet, I'm a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. And if someone asks, what are those wounds on your body? They'll answer, oh, wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Awake sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. It's the word of God. (laughs) Israel is in the land. The temple is being rebuilt. And they're beginning to wonder, are the promises that God has made imminent? Are they going to be fulfilled now? What's their hope? We rebuild the temple. The glory of the Lord descends on it. The Messiah turns up and leads Israel to be the world's superpower that will govern and no longer be oppressed. And they'll dictate how the world should be. This is what they're looking for. We know how the story goes. It doesn't happen quite the way they're thinking about. They miss the point of what's going on. But God is going to speak to them. Not about what he's going to do right now, but he's going to speak to them about what is coming in the future, what he's going to do in human history. And as he starts this process and explains what he's going to do, I love how he begins. He wants to remind them who he is and the power that he has to do the things that he's about to declare. So if you're God and you want to remind people that you have the power to do the things that you're about to say, where do you start? You start at creation. I am the one who stretched out the heavens, who stretched out the earth, and who formed the spirit of man. So what's he saying? I am sovereign over the world and over the heavens, and I am even sovereign over the spiritual condition of humanity. So he's just setting us up. This is what you need to remember as I tell you what I'm about to do. I have power over all. So I want to look at four movements or four actions of God in this passage that should reassure us of who he is. But there are also four actions that describe the right kind of father that we're supposed to be experiencing and worshiping. So here is God as father and the work that he does that he reveals in this passage. So first of all, God defends his people. And so if you're looking in chapter 12 down at verse 8 and 9, you get this moment where it says, On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest of them will be like David, the mighty warrior and the king who ruled. So he's going to shield these people. The creator, in this moment at the beginning, as he's talking about what it looks like to shield, how is he going to protect and defend and shield his people? So he's just talked about being creator. In this passage, he uses the statement three times, so I will make. So this is tied into the fact he's the creator. He has the ability to make something. There are three things in the passage that he says he's going to make Israel into. And here's what they are. First of all, I'm going to make you a cup that sends all the surrounding people reeling. What's the significance of the cup in Scripture? The cup usually references judgment. Jesus says to James and John, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? 
the cup of suffering and judgment that I'm going to take on myself. So you get this image of these nations coming against Israel. Israel's a bottle of fine wine and it's poured out in the cup and they're like, we're just going to guard yourselves on the fine wine of Israel. And God says, they can do that. But what happens if you guard yourself on wine? You get drunk and when you're drunk, you do stupid things. And so just be prepared. These people might try and do this, but they're going to reap a consequence of this. He goes on and says, I will make Jerusalem like an immovable rock. And all of these people that think they can take you down, they're going to come and they're going to try and lift up that rock. And people in the room, what happens when you try and lift something that's too heavy for you? (laughs) What did you do, Mark? (laughs) Where's Mark? I can't see Mark. He's disappeared. Mark, oh, he's in the back there. The number of times Mark couldn't play kit because he'd hurt his back doing something awesome. Uh, that was what I was thinking about there. The number of times I do it, it's like Ella's like, lift me up, daddy. And I'm like, oh, oh mm. I need to start working out again. But Israel is going to be this rock. They're going to come against it. They're going to try and pick up. They're going to try and move in. The only thing that's going to happen is they're going to be hurt as a consequence. Third thing, I'm going to make the clans of Judah like a fire pot, this, this vessel filled with fire that's going to be placed in the middle of a pile of wood and what's going to happen, it's going to consume everything. Uh, They're going to be burnt up and Israel is going to be protected in the middle. In the middle of this, you've got the cup, the stone, that's one and two, and then number four is the fire pot. Number three, he says, I'm going to take these nations that come against you and I'm going to cause panic and fear to be in them and blindness in their horses and so they're not going to know what, what to do. And in that image, we're looking back at Exodus as the Israelites are trying to cross the Red Sea and he puts panic in the, in, in the, the horses and the, the Egyptians and then the water comes and swallows them up. So he's staying, I have power to do this. People will come against you. This is not, I'm going to shield you and life is going to be coochie. This is, I'm going to be protecting you. People are going to come against you, but in coming against you, they themselves are going to experience the damage that they want to have on you. If you know your Bible well, then you know this is the promise that God gave right at the beginning when he called the nation of Israel. What does he say in the Abrahamic blessing? The Lord says to Abraham, you're going to go from your country, leave your father's household, go to land, I will show you, and this is what will happen. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on the earth are going to be blessed through you. So Abram went and he did as the Lord told him. The promise always was, Israel, my plan is to bless the whole world through you. So the people that come and submit to what I'm doing in you and learn from you the fear of the Lord and walk with you in the ways that I've described, they're going to experience blessing. And anyone that comes against you or comes against what I've instructed is going to be cursed. This is what he's saying in these three images. They're going to drink the cup. They're going to lift the stone. They're going to be burned up by the fire pot they try and come against my people. God defends his people, but he says it very explicitly in here, not just will he shield the people living in Jerusalem, but I will set out to destroy the nations that attack. So this is how I'm going to shield you. This is how God shields his people today. People come against us. Things come against us. They cannot destroy us. God shields us and walks with us and uses it in a redemptive way in our life. But he is also against the things that come against us. And he is actively out to destroy all of those people and things that stand against him. Why? Because his way is love. His way is to bless. His way is generosity. His way is to put other people above ourselves. At any time uh, that 
ideology is distorted, God comes against it because it does damage in the world. He wants to destroy all that that stands against what he wants to see happen in this world. So, so God defends his people just like a good father defends his children. Second movement in the passage, it says God pours out a spirit that brings about a changed heart. I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. This beautiful moment, what's God going to do at the end? How's this all going to happen? What's happening to us? What's happening to Israel? At the end of the day, the result is always the same. God pours out something into people that causes them to grasp his grace, to call out for his mercy, and to turn their eyes onto the one who was pierced on our behalf. That's what he does. He pours out his spirit. This word pours out is fairly unique in scripture. The place that we know this the best is in Acts at Pentecost, and they're quoting Joel chapter 2, that on that day I will pour out my spirit And your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions and men and women alike are going to experience the fullness of the Spirit of God in the world. So this promise that a spirit gets poured out. We see all through scripture when the word poured out is used, there's one of two ways. He's either pouring out wrath and anger on those who have rejected him and turned away from him or he's pouring out his spirit on the people who are his in a way that's going to transform their heart and lead them to him. What happens, though, when these people experience the spirit of grace and supplication? I love this verse. It's one you're familiar with from the Gospels. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. I don't know what some people do with this passage when they don't think this is referring to Jesus as the Messiah. God is really clear. They're going to look at me, the one they have pierced. The word that they're using here for pierced is not used very often in Scripture. And it literally means to fatally wound someone with a sword or a spear. So God is saying, you are going to fatally wound me with some kind of sharp instrument that's going to kill me. Now, some people are like, oh, no, this is metaphorical. God's going to be pierced emotionally at our rebellion. Well, the word's not used that way ever in Scripture. It is only ever, like, jail takes, no, who is it? It's Eliezer, no, Phineas. Phineas that takes the spear and jabs it through jail and the guy in the tent and stabs them both to the ground so they're dead. This is the word pierced. Um, yeah, yeah this, this is fatal. So in this moment, God is going to pour out a spirit into people. The job of that spirit is to open their hearts, that they're going to look and understand that he himself was pierced for us. It's how the Gentiles come to faith. It's how the Jews come to faith. They're restored into this place with him when they begin to mourn the work that they've done. And this is potent for Israel because what did Israel do? God sent the Messiah that they were longing for and they killed him. And to this day, Jews gather believing that the Messiah hasn't come yet, that one day this Messiah is going to come and they don't realize that they put to death the Messiah, and in that process brought salvation to all of the world, bringing the Gentiles into the family of God. But a day is coming, God says, where I'm going to do something in the hearts of the the Jewish people. I'm going to pour out a spirit on them, and they're going to realize 
the mistake that they made. They're going to realize that they pierced me. They're going to realize that. They're going to grieve and they're going to mourn. And look at the description. They're going to mourn like someone mourning for their only child. They're going to grieve bitterly as if they've just lost their firstborn son. And the passage goes on to make it really clear. This is, this is not just a couple of people repenting and realizing this. This is like national grief and mourning over what they did. And how do you see it? In the passage, they describe it like this. Uh, the land's going to mourn. Each clan itself is going to mourn. This is verse 12 and 13. It's not up there. I'm just going to read it out of my Bible. The land will mourn each clan by itself with their wives by themselves. The clan of the house of David and their wives, that's the royal line. The clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, either his son or the prophetic line. The clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the priestly line. And then all of the rest of the clans and their wives. So every clan of the royal household, of the prophetic lineage, of the priestly line, and of the average Joe, all by themselves are going to be mourning and grieving because they're going to realize what they've done. They're going to accept that they pierced him and they're going to turn their hearts back to him. If we're in any doubt that this passage is talking about the Messiah, John makes it really clear for us in his gospel, John chapter 19. This is right at the end of the crucifixion scene. It says, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, when they came to Jesus and saw that he, had already, he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. One scripture says, not one of his bones will be broken. And then another, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. I think what's always important to remember as, as we revisit this part of the gospel is the passage makes it really clear. It's not something that they do that causes them to turn to him. He pours out a spirit of grace and supplication that helps them to understand the, the, who the Messiah was and what happened in that moment. You cannot give your life to Jesus apart from the work that God does in you first to move you towards understanding who he is. You can learn about the Bible, you can read it and figure out the facts, but until his spirit moves in you, you cannot respond. And the Bible makes it really clear that if you do not respond to him, there are two realities. Those who respond to the death of the Messiah on our behalf are given eternal life with Christ, and those who don't are separated from him eternally. God's spirit at work in us enables us to embrace Jesus as the one who is pierced for our transgressions, as Isaiah puts it. So God pours out what is needed on his people. Number three, the spirit's poured out on them. It gives them the spirit of grace and supplication, but the result of that is that God then washes clean his people. So chapter 13 starts, so on that day, on that day, where you start grieving for the Messiah that you killed on that day, where you understand that Jesus died to set you free from the brokenness of the world. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity, the Spirit doing a cleansing work in people. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land and they will be remembered no more. Jeremiah said it this way, 
My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. On that day, a fountain is going to be released. This is the same word here as living water. God wants us to have life. There is a fountain that brings life to us. There is a way that we walk in the world that brings life to us and the people around about us. But we, like Israel, are so used to going back to the broken cisterns that we're comfortable with. We like it the way it was. Let's go back. This was easy for me. This was comfortable for me. I sure felt that on Sunday when I walked in the door and I was like, no one knows where to sit because we're not doing church as normal. We're doing a rise in the park. I walked in the door and I watched people come in. No one knew where to sit. No one knew what to do. I didn't know what to do. I was like, so much easier just to do church as normal. Let's never do this again. Um, We want the broken system. Not that church is a broken system, but we want the way that's comfortable and easy. We don't want to be pushed out into the new and living way. And we do that in all sorts of things. We do it in, in our relational habits with people, the way we relate to them. We talk about them, think about them. We do it in our worship style and our Bible reading and the way we share the gospel and the way we think about God, the way we walk through the world. We tend to go back to our broken systems, uh, the, the addictions and the habits uh, that we rely on rather than on him. He wants to give us life. So on that day, A spring or a fountain is going to be open that's going to pour forth life and bring cleansing. What does the cleansing entail for Israel? The removal of idols. On that day, I will banish the the name of the idols from the land and they will be remembered no more. So note it doesn't say like it has up till this point in scripture, like, you know, they, they get rid of the idols one day and then the next day they've got their idols back, right? We're going to banish not just the idols, the names of the idols are going to be destroyed from people's memory. So this is so much cleansing that you never think about it ever again. And people collectively don't even remember what it is to engage in lust or anger because it's been completely removed from the land. The names are forgotten and then he's going to remove the false prophets and not just the false prophets but the spirit of impurity that lies behind their idolatry and their false prophecy. And what's the false prophecy? It's all of these people that are like, <laughs> well, well, now it's all the people that are saying the Messiah is coming. He didn't come yet. Um, all of those people. But the passage goes on to say that, that people are going to be so ashamed of prophecy that even parents are going to be willing to kill their kids because false prophecy is going to be so abhorrent to them that they can't stand to hear untruth being spoken. I, I wonder where we're at in that process. Like, how do we do at, at, at putting up with lies and untruths and false prophecies as they're spoken? Do we abhor it? And not just our opinions, but the actual truth. Um, But this cleansing, and just think about it in your life, the cleansing will remove all idolatry and sin from your life so that you don't even remember the name of the sin that you committed. It's going to move all false prophecy from the land and from the world. So all of those things that stood against the way of God are no longer going to be spoken into your life. All you will see is purity and truth. Uh, and it's the spirit behind it all as he moves to do this cleansing work. The final movement is the declaration that it says, God says, God claims his people this moment. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is our God. This declaration that we are his, that we are found in him, 
This is part of this last declaration that God makes. It kind of breaks the passage and he just comes in with this statement and it's kind of horrifying to read it and think about it. So let me look at Zechariah 13 verse 7 and just remind us of what's going on here. This is God giving a command about his shepherd who he's close to. God is issuing a command here about Jesus. Awake sword against my shepherd strike him. God permitting the death of his son in order that redemptive work could happen. Awake sword against the shepherd, against the man who's close to me. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Matthew 26, Jesus quotes this. He's talking to Peter and he gives this verse. The sheep, they're going to strike the shepherd. The sheep are going to be scattered. And Peter goes, not me. I'm going to be with you till the end. And Jesus is like, no. Like before the crow's made its noise three times, whatever. Before the cock crows, that's it, not the crow. <laughs> Before the crow crows, <laughs> Before the, the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. Jesus takes this and applies it to himself. I'm going to be struck and the people are going to be scattered. Here's God in this passage giving the command for it to happen, knowing that in this moment of pain and suffering, what did he call it? It's me that's going to be pierced and it's going to bring redemption to everyone. And the, and the whole land declares the Lord, two thirds will be struck down, yet one third, a remnant of God's people will be left. They'll be put through a refining fire like silver, tested like gold. And in that process, they're going to call on my name and I will answer them. I will declare that they're my people and that they're my God. This is the true resolution of how the book began. We're going to look at chapter 14 next week, but this passage actually resolves what started at the beginning of the book. Can you remember the prologue to Zechariah? How does he set up the whole message that God's bringing? Zechariah 1.3, Therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. The command was, this whole book, return to me, and if you do, I will return to you. You're in the land, things are going like along okay, but you've not returned to me. You have to keep returning to me and I'll return to you. So what happens at the end of it? They'll call on my name, they'll turn back to him and what will he do? He returns to them. They are my people and I will be their God. Through the movement of God, the people permanently return to, to him. And, and then this, all of this is talking about on that day, but, but here's the reality of, of salvation history. This stuff was fulfilled at the death and resurrection of Jesus in part because we saw in Jerusalem the Spirit of God falling on Jewish people and God-fearing people and they started speaking in other languages and declaring the truth of the gospel and the church was birthed of both Jew and Gentile. But then there's a moment coming in the future where Jesus is going to return in a visible and powerful way and in that moment Jews living on the earth are going to realize that they were wrong. And they're going to give their lives back to him in mass numbers. So this passage, the movements of 12 and 13, God defends, he pours out, he washes clean, he and then he claims his people as his own. You know, this is the basic gospel. So you're back in Zechariah. This is, uh, what, 500 years before Jesus was born, uh, declaring these truths that we saw lived out in the life of Jesus. But, but what this is saying is the experience is the same for all. Jew and Gentile, all people come to faith and saving faith through fixing their eyes on the one who is pierced for them. 
But it's easy to listen to, to this kind of content and go, well, I'm saved. Like, I've already fixed my eyes on Jesus, so like, yada, yada, this is a message I don't need to hear again. The context of the book is this is not just about salvation, but this is about ongoing repentance. It's about the call to return and have God return to us. Every day is an opportunity to fix our eyes on the one that we have pierced and remember and mourn and grieve that we put him there. That our sins are the ones that nailed him to the cross. That the things that you did this morning that dishonored God nailed Jesus on the cross. And today again, you have to repent of that to walk with him. It raises the question, are you listening to God and following him into what he has for you today? Or are you living your life or your faith in broken cisterns that are filled with stagnant water? And it's so easy to depend on what God did in the past rather than see him moving in our lives today. It's so easy to think we're going to get by on the things that worked before and not be willing to step into what it is that he wants us to do today. And if you don't know Jesus, it's so easy to be like, well, I'm a good person. I don't, know, I, I don't need this Jesus guy to save me. I'm a good person. I live the right way. The reality is everything you do that you do wrong makes you guilty of killing the Son of God. And the only way that you experience the fullness of life that was intended is when this moment happens, when you say, I'm going to admit it, the spirit of grace and supplication, I accept that you did this for me. I'm going to cast myself on you. The spirit pours into your life. You're made a new creation and you're freed from the old way of life and able to move into this world in a new way. For many people, the salvation moment, it's like going from living life in black and white to living life in full color as you begin to see the world as God intended it. So if you're here and and you're stuck in sin, if you're here and you have moments of discouragement, if you're here and, and you look at yourself and you think, I make these commitments to change and live differently and it never seems to work out. If you're here and, and, and you have lies that go through your mind, things that were spoken over you that were negative, you'll never be good enough. You can't do it. You can't make it. If you're here and those things are going through your life, we need to turn our eyes back to the one who is pierced for us, who took away all our transgression, who took our iniquity upon him in order that we would be healed. And in that moment, we invite and accept the work of the Spirit as he comes to cleanse us again, day by day, moment by moment. Now, why are we talking about all of this? Because we're the church. We are called to live a certain way in the world that makes God's mission effective in this world. And so if we settle back into how it was, we're never going to progress forward. We've got to continue to listen to him, continue to walk in repentance of the ways that we fail and what he's called us to do. We've got to invite him to move in our lives, to fix our eyes, to change us and to drive us forward so that he can get the glory that he deserves because a day is coming when he's going to appear and every knee is going to bow before him and some of us are going to bow voluntarily in worship. We're going to fall on our knees because it's the only right response when he's in front of us. And some of us are going to be forced to our knees in sorrow as we realize how wrong we've been uh, and the consequence of that as we spend eternity separated from him. So what choice do you want to do? What father are you looking to today? Let's fix our eyes on the one uh, who defends us, 
who pours out into us, who cleanses us, and then who claims us as his, and then let's walk out into the world in a way that offers that to the people that are around us. God, these are basic gospel truths, but it's amazing to look back at something written uh, 500 years before you came in the incarnation. This was predicting that you would come, that you would suffer, that you would die, and that salvation would come through that. God, it's easy. It's easy to live our lives without thinking about it. It's easy to feel like we don't need it. Uh, And it's easy to live and forget how important this is so we don't share the gospel with the people around us. We permit ourselves to live in sin and brokenness. We give excuses for our wrong behavior. Uh, And we give excuses for complacency. So God, reawaken the gospel in us. Pour out your spirit on us once more. Would you fill us again today? And would you send us in the hope and in the truth and in the power that brings transformation? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we worship.